week from this little church, and I wasn't be able to be with you ladies. Probably Larry read a bunch of mushy poems, and you're sick of it. But I want to read a couple of mushy poems, because I didn't get to read them to you, see. I did share with Evansville last week. But you're the great-granddaughters of Eve, and you stick your chin out and be proud. I'm going to conclude with what's special about a woman here as we talk about an entirely different subject, but it's going to come back to this. A long time ago, Pat and I saw three women in the church that were particularly noble, and we made a poem about it, and I want to share that with you. One's a young maiden lady who was one of our best teachers in our school, in a school that's got the best teachers in the world, and I want you to know I'm so proud of that woman. She's not a mother or anything else. She's just a good, dedicated, professional woman to the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom. And another who was a young woman with lots of kids. And everywhere you saw her, she had a handful of kids. And yet she was a surrogate mother to the children of the church and to the children of the neighborhood and those who were lost. And then an older woman who had raised, she was a grandmama, and that's a special kind of woman. And she'd raised her kids and had raised them so beautifully in the power and in the authority of the kingdom of God. And I just wanted to thank them all in these poems. Don't try to recognize anybody that you see here because I'm not aiming at that. But listen, it's poor poetry, but the thoughts are sublime. Her young girl's body was a beautiful thing, but high carbon steel had removed one of her breasts. And a cancer's death and the needle's sting, now she's sweet sixteen with dreams to suppress. And worried about dances and marriage and mate, little off balance, she tried to stand straight. And yet all the while she smiled a holy smile, making it hard to determine the shape of her cross. You remember Matthew 25? In so much as you've done this unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, Jesus speaking. Now a young mother of two with one on the way needed help with the kids, and she was late for work too. Asked me to watch over the house for part of the day. Could she pay me tomorrow? There were other bills due, and with children and work, there's not enough hours, little time for a husband, no candy, no flowers. She never quit, nor she considered it fit. And just like the master, she hung into life until it was finished. Now a middle-aged woman with cobalt blue eyes with tear-misting rain sighed, my children are grown. Life is bleak in a house where love daily dies. She spent all of her life in a house, not a home, was faithful, enduring till the kids moved away. Two were left at the table with nothing to say. And as I started to turn, did I faintly discern in her yet lovely face the marks of his scourge. You look around you and see some noble people who bear in their face, who bear in their lifestyle, the marks of the suffering of Jesus. My subject today has a lot to do with failure, has a lot to do with despair and the agony of defeat, and I see it in our lives. I see it around us. Man, I'll never forget that guy going off the end of the ski lift, a crumpled mass, and you hear of the agony of defeat. Sometimes we find ourselves facing that in life and in our spiritual existence. And I know that some of you have suffered some real agonies and some real heartaches. Now, Adam failed, I want you to know, but he was the first man that God saved. Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, sometime lied, was a sometime adulterer and scoffed at God, but he was called God's faithful man. 
Moses, can you imagine this, never made it to Israel, but he's called the father of Israel. Samson, who was so strong, so powerful, had a problem named Delilah, and she was something else, and he became Israel's greatest warrior. Peter, who denied Christ, which just astounds me that anyone could do such a dastardly deed, was the first and the greatest of God's preachers. Now, first of all, every one of us must live in this world. And if you live in this world, you must know that there is a reality to failure, that there is failure around us. God knows we fail. Are we trying to fake him for heaven's sakes? I hope not. Listen to Psalms 103, verse 14. For he knoweth our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I'm thankful to God for that since I never be different. God, did you presume I was righteous? No, I never have to say that silly remark, do I? Because he knew that our relationship to him was sometimes untrustworthy, sometimes not what it ought to be. For that's the very nature of our frame, framework. Our bodily makeup is that we can't always be counted on. Someone says, I get so depressed when I look at the failures of people. I get more depressed when I look at my own failures. How about you? And we have to forgive them both. True success is not avoiding failure. Because if you're doing something, you're going to fail. Have you ever just worked your heart out and had someone say, well, you could have uh, done that uh, this way. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Why, sure enough, honey, I know that you could have done it a hundred different ways than I did it. I'm going to do it the spastic way. But how about you? Sometimes you don't do it the way of perfection either, see? It's learning what to do with failure that makes us successful Christians. It makes us successful in the house of God. Now, baby Ruth, and I, I wouldn't even watch a game, a full game of, as far as I know, I've never watched a full game of baseball, but because there's more wonderful sports than that. But you know, the guy who hit the most home runs was the guy the same season who took the most swings and struck out. And his name was Baby Ruth. And he was somebody, wasn't it? And you know that when you're just going for the long run and the long bomb, man alive, you're liable to strike out too, aren't you? Who cares? Do you remember how many times he struck out? Can anybody probably, probably Brent can tell us how many times he struck out that season, but we all remember that he made more home runs than anybody else on the face of the earth. And that's tremendous. Edison, you know, is considered to be such a Jesus. He wasn't so bright. He tried over 5,000 light bulb filaments before he found the one, tungsten, that really worked. Now, that's not just genius. That's stick to itiveness, isn't it, and persistence. That's what it takes sometimes to make a success in life. And sometimes we are so afraid of failure that it's that fear that becomes worse than anything else. And I know many, many people say, oh, I just don't think I ought to try that. I just don't think I could be this or I don't think I could be that. And that fear will never know because if that scare, that fear, phobeo, phobia, hydrophobia, claustrophobia, agoraphobia, fried chickenophobia, there's all kinds of fears of everything under the sun. In many psychological textbooks, there's almost 2,000 fears of things that have been categorized. I mentioned that the psychologists have now quantified 64 fears that they can treat you for, all for 125 bucks an hour if he's a cheapie. I think I'd have a lot of fears you'd be scared of because I'd just be that much richer, wouldn't you? And people do have a tone of fear, and there's a finality to fear because if the fear keeps you from trying, you'll never be what you want to be. 
God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. Of power. Boy, I love the little church. Funny little church. Not that big, is it? But it sent its people all over the face of the earth. Did you know the average church sends out or ordains one person in its lifetime? Now you know that in a very short period of time we sent out 22. And that doesn't count the folks who are in full-time work, like orphanage work, or in missions work. That doesn't even account that. Those are just men who are ordained, and many of those are preaching all over the face of the earth. So I'm glad for that power. Not of fear, because I know there's a power of fear. Boy, let me tell you, if you walk into the wrong kind of places acting fearful, you're going to get your lips mashed off. You better go in there swaggering like you're the cock of the walk and you might pull it off. But you approach a tough fight with fear and I'll tell you, you're whipped already. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And it's time to think that we are winners of power, of love. And of us, I what's the unconquerable grace of God is, I think, love, don't you? Agapeo, selfless love. You can't put a man or a woman down who has selfless love in their heart because you can't hurt them. I thought about those mothers or that young lady who had the operation that changed her life forever but never changed her lifestyle. She still loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think of those women as being a wonderful expression of inconquerable love. You can't stop a mama. And I don't care how messy the diapers get. And you know, I'll go only so far with a diaper. I've made that commitment. I will go a little ways when it comes to diapers. But mamas have to go all the way when it comes to diapers. You can believe that with all of your heart. And a sound Mind. We look out at the world which is schizophrenic, at a world which is split. It's going one way and slifting off another. It's talking about one thing and doing another. And that leads to an inner fear and phobia, which I think tends to conquer us. We have in general, even in the church, not been able to forgive ourselves. We try real hard at forgiving others because we heard that was a commandment somewhere along. Forgive others, see. And we really try that, at least to varying degrees, but we find it so hard to forgive ourselves. And I know men and women in the household of the faith who are such wonderful people who are bearing a burden of guilt because they've not been able to forgive themselves. Others, they did a good job on, but they cannot seem to forgive themselves. And yet I say that's not what God intended for His people. He said in Proverbs 28, verse 13, he that covers his sins shall never prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have no mercy. To say that you've sinned, there's nothing wrong with that. How fearful we are that someone will hear that we're, we've made a mistake, yet we ought to with great pride be able to say, I did sin, I did make a mistake. I want to share with you, brother and sister. And then, because you have made that confession of faith, it's much easier then to leave that, leave that sin. Forget that sin. Put it out of your life. If God has forgotten, he said, remember, 
I will remember their sins no more. And that ought to go out in 3D with the multiple amps. No more, 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 more. And we ought to hear it night and day. God said, I do not even intend to remember your sins if you're born of the water and if you are born of the Spirit. That's what the church is supposed to be preaching, isn't it? Not to conform, as so many scriptures have been read this morning, it all gone together so beautifully, hasn't it? It has all gone together well. Identify, therefore, the very things that you can do best and concentrate on that thing. You know that God gave us everyone to have different identities and different people, we're different shapes, we're different sexes, we're different intellects, we're different colors, we're different uh, uh, layers of obesity, we're just so uniquely different. And why should we all be put into one little category? See, like a mold, a mold hems in, doesn't it? A mold is binding, a mold doesn't take us very far, does it? You just conform to the limits of the cavity into which you are poured. And so we don't have to be poured into the cavity of anybody else except ourselves. And I don't know what God wants you to do to be victorious. I don't know what God wants you to do to overcome your past and to forget those things which have gone by. But I do want you to know that he wants you to be what you ought to be. The ladder that is on the way upward is climbed step by step. A lot of people have failed, I think, in the kingdom of God because they set their mind to leap over mighty tall buildings. And Superman does that. But you and I aren't Superman. But the key to success is one step upward at a time. Even if it's a timid little step, step up. Start exercising yourself to forgetting the past and going on to those things which are to come to pass. In Proverbs 24, 16, listen to this. It is worth remembering. For a just man falls seven times and he rises up again. For many people to just stumble publicly once, that's the end of it. That's it. But you see, a good man, a just man, God's man, can stumble seven. Of course, I think of seven times 70. Don't you think that's probably the message? The past is done. Hey, God doesn't care about the past. He forgot that. How come you're remembering? How come you're bothering with that baggage that you claim that you're dragging along, see? No, he wants us to go on. He wants us to be something better. Seven times is not too many times to fall. If you lay there, that's when the danger comes, and that's when you're most vulnerable. God wants us to go on, to grow, to take a step upward, not to bother about leaping tall buildings, but to methodically practice a successful life from day to day, from hour to hour, from evening unto evening. Secondly, I think overcoming the guilt of the past is so much enrolled in the concept that God's grace is enough for us. So be it. Let God's grace be enough for us. And self-condemnation is so often self-indulgent. See how many times you're using the word self there? And self-punishment. You've heard of the flagellante. Those who just simply whip and lash themselves to bleeding ecstasy. That isn't the kind of flagellante that God wants us to indulge in. He wants us to not scourge ourselves. For remember the scourge in the young woman's face 
There was a scourge. She bore the marks of the whips of life, didn't she? As Jesus bore the scourge. And oh, how important that is. I see in many lovely faces today of both male and female, of granddaddies and mothers, little children. Even little children have had to bear the marks of the scourge of life in their face. And they bear it well and they bear it graciously. They go on and they forget. They're not condemning themselves and they're not indulging in that very thing. That, of course, means to repent. Repent means to have a change in attitude or a change in behavior. I think that's why Acts 2.38 clearly proclaim, repent and be baptized. You see, you have to have a change of mind and heart before baptism means anything. Before being born again, you have to be born according to the seed, the word of God. And then, of course, confession was so important because I can't hide what I am and I have no need to. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know sincere, godly people who are still looking for that cleansing which was accomplished so long ago. But He says if we are faithful, see, and if we've confessed it, and if we're going on, He will forgive us our sins. And the manifestation of that is that our conscience should be clear now. Our confession, our way of life has cleared the way for us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go to bed tonight. I don't care what you've done in the past. If you've cleared it with God, it's not my business. You can sleep well tonight if the past is behind you, you see. If you confess that sin, and specifically to God, and if you're moving on, see, to live the kind of walk that you ought to walk, if you've straightened it out with God, you don't have to worry about anything else. And sleep well, mi compadre, because it's my conviction that you go on the journey of life, your conscience should be cleansed. And that leads the life of power. I think the joy of going to Russia is that here's the biggest country on the face of the earth who for 70 years have not had the Word of God. Can you imagine the uncleansed consciousness in such a vast mass of people, of children who were raised, of men and women who were raised, who never knew the succor and the comfort and the joy of one who is called Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? I, I just, the opportunity to do such a thing for people who've in many cases never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, who have not read His Word, who wouldn't know what the advice, you know, there's a peace and a comfort in this Word in there. Notice that little Gideon Bible. And I thank God for the Bible, for the Word of God. Here's stability, here's comfort, here's peace of mind. And, and here's a people who never had such a thing. It was worth your life to possess such a thing. And yet not to have it was to cost them their eternal life. And listen, forgiveness is a lot of things, isn't it? And it's easy, you know, to forgive, I suppose, but it's not too easy to forget, is it? John 3.17, we've heard of 3.16, but he said, For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through His self. Now, I think that's neat, don't you? He didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to put us down. Sometimes we get defensive, don't we? 
like we're ready to be condemned. Like you often get that, don't you? You almost get conditioned to it. But he didn't come to do that. He came to save us. I was thinking in all the ways that I've been a failure. I found this in a psychology book, so I just wrote it down. Academically, I didn't make straight A's. I don't know about you. It's kind of hard to teach in a college which now offers master's degree level without a doctorate. And I've managed to stumble a lot. Academic, <laughs> I've failed. Economic, you know why I'm so tight? I got to go to Pond Creek one time when I was a senior in high school, well, it was the summer I got free. I got, we went 18 miles north of town to Pond Creek. Now that's a big deal if you live in Enid, Oklahoma, where the name Dine, see, came, uh, that's where the word Enid came from, see, Dine. The cowboys looked out the restaurant there where it said Dine, it spelled Enid backwards. And I see, with that kind of thing, and you know how much money I had? I had $2 to take my sweetheart, 18 miles. I gave the guy that drove a dollar and so we went to the fair with me kind of desperate with a dollar in my pocket. When we went, <laughs> this woman had a voracious appetite. <laughs> I didn't really want my hamburger by the time she had eaten mine. I now had 60 cents left for a whole evening of three hours in Pond Creek, Oklahoma during the county fair. And that was a long night. So if you think I'm tight sometimes, it's because I acquired it naturally. <laughs> That's all I had, believe you me, and what a long night. Marital, which one among us has done everything they should in their marriage? Which one among us? I may say with impunity, have I done what I might have done for my children? Sometimes I lay awake at night and I think, I should have done that for my Sally. I should have done that for my Debbie. I should have done that for my Pat, see? And sometimes we all face that, and moral, well, someone said morality is what you do when nobody's watching. And which among of us haven't uh, done things when we didn't think someone was watching, huh? And the sad part of this whole world is people are do things even if they know you're watching. It's changed, hasn't it? Changed incredibly. Professional. One time I made an outline for an oil and gas play in the center of the Powder River Basin. I tried to get it. I tried to sell it. Uh, we couldn't get anybody to buy it. Discouraged, I quit. That is three of the biggest oil fields in the Rocky Mountains today. He said, I just quit. I just quit the eternal. I'm, I'm noted for running into windmills. That's all I do in my life is run into windmills. And yeah, socially, I went steady three years with a girl who didn't go steady with me. I am such a social nullifidian that I can't find anybody up at the college to march down the aisle with. And I've been there 27 years. So I know that we fail. If I fail, you can too. What is grace or atonement for? Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. And so there's the three great big R's. Restitution, see. If you've stolen something, you can give it back. The hard thing about gossiping about somebody, that's hard to give them back their character, isn't it? So you be careful. You at least try to, to restitute. See, to right the wrong as best you can.
This will help you with your conscience so that you can be guiltless before God. Reconciliation means to bring things together. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. See, so he's not charging you with your sins. He's not making account of it. Why do you? And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in God's stead, be ye reconciled to God. If you're reconciled to God, nothing else really, really matters. And then restore, restore. Restore such a one, he says, those who have slipped, you are spiritual. And that means to put them back into service again. If you've made a mistake, you need to be teaching again. You need to be preaching again. You need to be healing again. You need to be doing those things which God gave you purpose to do. Now, very lastly, as I look at starting all over and assuming that the past is gone, God has been looking to the future. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9, it says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not betrayed. And I'd like to think of, paraphrase it this way. Good morning, Mr. Troubled. Because see, we were troubled. Oh, on every side, but we weren't distressed. We didn't quit, did we? Good morning, grandmother uh, perplexed. You ever feel, I, you ever have a morning you don't wake up perplexed? <laughs> What's the world come to? And uh, surely the end age of God is consummate. And I need to have that perplexion not leading to despair. For many of the world, they're finding their healing in the bottle or in drugs see, or an affair of some kind. Something to cancel the past. But you see, there's no despair in our perplexion. Good morning, Mrs. Forsaken, but not cast down. That's a long name, but that's a good name, isn't it? Good morning. Well, take stock of your gifts. And in Romans 12, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but he lists about 10 things there that are gifts that he wants you to exercise. The gift of preaching, the gift of serving, the gift of explaining, the gift of encouraging, the gift of giving, the gift of administering, and the gifts of being merciful. You know, this church would be 10,000 strong if it just exercised mercy to everyone that needed a mercy, even little babies. If we would just exercise mercy to those who have it coming. And you know, I was a sinner, and yet Jesus was merciful. You were a sinner, and yet he had mercy on you too. So therefore, take stock in your gifts and exercise them. That's the best way to forget the past. That's the best way to have the guilt of the past be forgotten. It's go and do something else, see. Forgetting those things which are behind, he said, I what? Pass on. I go on. I surge ahead. Forgetting those things which are behind. That was the first step to healing and forgetting the past. Wasn't it? Forgetting the past. Quit dwelling in the past. Quit thinking about the past. Quit talking of the past. 
for it's now and forevermore that's relevant in the sight of the Lord Almighty. Trust God. If any one of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given unto him. He just didn't give us a gift and then nag us all the time we were enjoying the gift. He said he doesn't upbraid us anymore. You know what that means? Chew us out. Don't, you don't need to be chewed out about anything. It was done through Satan. And Christ conquered that upbraiding and is with us no more. In Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ. Who satisfies our need? Our husband? Is it our wife? Who satisfies our needs? Our children? Well, to some degree that's true. But I just read that. It says, My God shall supply all your needs needs and we need to look toward God and have God it's not my job that's going to satisfy me totally it's not my country that's going to satisfy me totally it's not my political stance it's not anything that I possess except it is my God and my God alone as we stand and offer the hymn of invitation and our hymn of invitation is number 342